We'll be reading from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw through the bush was on fire, but it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight of why the bush did not burn up. When the Lord said, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. What is holding you back from the life that God created you to live? Are you being held captive by doubts, fears, or sins? Like the Israelites, we can get comfortable in captivity. Staying with the familiar can seem easier than moving forward in faith. The redemptive story of the Exodus reminds us that God wants to lead us out of captivity and that we can trust God as we journey to freedom. We are starting a new sermon series on the book of Exodus. And like we do each time we start a new series, we have Discovery Bible Study bookmarks available for you. Those are out in the lobby if you actually want a hard copy to put in your Bible. I would encourage you to consider starting a Discovery Bible Study with someone. Grab some friends, people in your class, some neighbors, people you work with, and just open up God's Word together and go through these questions and use the biblical text. Or you can use this as a resource for your own personal study as you track along with our sermon series. These are out in the lobby. They're also on our website. You can go to uh, the Resources tab and find it there under Discovery Bible Study. I'm excited about this series on Exodus. And we're not just going to plow through the text aimlessly. Sometimes we do that in our reading, don't we? We read something, and then we think, what did I just read? The truth is, when we go to the biblical text, we have a lens. We have a perspective, a worldview. Each and every one of us, we have that. It's unavoidable. And that perspective, or that lens, is shaped by many things. Our collective history, our personal experience, and even our bias. We all have bias when we approach the biblical text. We need to acknowledge that. And so for this series, we want to sort of focus that lens that we use to see the text. And the focus is this, what does the redemptive story of the Exodus, God delivering his people out of Egyptian captivity into freedom, into this land of promise, what does it say to us and about us regarding our journey to freedom? You see, God had a destiny for his people. He had the land of promise, the promised land. And in that land, it was to be their home, a new start with a new life and new freedom. We as New Testament Christians have a destiny given to us by God. It is in Christ that we have forgiveness. It is in Christ that we have salvation. It is in Christ that we have freedom. Freedom over the law. This mindset that says I have to keep the law perfectly to be righteous that is no longer the case 
We have righteousness through Christ and his perfection. In Christ, our destiny is freedom from the law. It is freedom from sin. It is freedom from fear. It is freedom from anything that keeps us from living the life that God created us to live, to enjoy the destiny that he has for us. Throughout the New Testament, we see the word freedom and free. That is our destiny. That is who we are. That is how we are to live as free people. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 tells us, now the, now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. There is freedom. He could have chosen a lot of words to put in that spot. There is forgiveness, there is joy, there is peace, there is purpose, and there are all of those things. But here, what does he say? That we have freedom. Where the Spirit of God is alive and working, and certainly that is in the lives of those who have surrendered their lives to Christ, there is to be freedom. In John chapter 8, verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you are what? You are free indeed. That is our destiny. Christ came here to set you free. I hope you know that. I hope you not only know that, but like Jim was saying, that knowledge shapes how you live as a free person, not burdened by the law, not held captive by sin, and all the other things. But see, here's the truth. We only understand the full blessing of being free when we understand the full burden of being captive, of being held in captivity. So confession time, I have been behind bars. It's true. Maybe some of you have heard this story. I was about 22 years old. I was new in youth ministry. I was sitting in my office in Denison, Texas, and I hear, overhear this happening outside my door. Two uniformed police officers come in, talk to the secretary, and they say, is Randy Roper here? Well, I immediately heard where her loyalties were, she sang like a bird. Yeah, he's right back there in that office. <laughs> As I'm hearing this, I'm thinking, I could hide under my desk. They may never think to look there, but I didn't have time. They showed up at my doorway. They say, are you Randy Roper? And I said, well, it depends. <laughs> I said, sir, you need to come with us. And they put me in handcuffs. They escorted me through the church office, and they stuffed me in the back seat of the police car. You should have seen the secretary's face when they took me out of the office. I had just been on the job a few months. She really didn't know me, and I know what she was thinking. Yeah, that guy's been embezzling pizza money from those youth. That's what he's doing. They finally caught him. So they put me in the police car, and here's the thing. They didn't take me downtown to the police station. Worse, they took me to the shopping mall. <laughs> That's worse than prison, right? They took me to the shopping mall. Y'all remember shopping malls. They take me to a side door, escort me in, and in the middle of the mall, there is a makeshift jail made out of Pepsi cases. They have these stacked Pepsi cases. You know how sometimes you go in the grocery store and they stack up displays with the soda cases? Well, they had basically a jail built out of soda cases. And in the middle of this jail, there were these long tables. And on these long tables, there were phone books. You can Google that, young people, phone books and landline telephones, and there were a few people sitting at these tables, and they said, okay, you're in jail now. Turns out it was an elaborate fundraiser 
for the Cancer Society. Someone had paid quite a bit of money to have me arrested and thrown into jail, and I still don't know who did that. To this day, I don't know who did that. But here's the thing, I couldn't just say, oh, that's neat, I'm glad, and then go on about my business. I had to raise $300 in bail to get out of jail. Well, I was new to this town. I didn't know that many people. I didn't know their phone numbers, you know, it was before cell phones, really. And so I'm calling all of my family members. Funny story, uh, yeah, I need you to bail me out, but don't worry, I'm not really in jail. I'm sort of in jail, but it's a fundraiser. Finally, finally I raised the money and I got out of jail. You know, that experience obviously is a far cry from actually being incarcerated. But even that experience gave me a glimpse into how valuable freedom is. Freedom is priceless. It is one of the greatest values that we enjoy, that we have. And yet, so often, we take it for granted. So often, we don't embrace the freedom we have. See, that's the irony of it. We long to be free. We value freedom above almost everything else. And yet so often, we can't embrace it. We can't embrace freedom. I want you to think about the things that hold you captive in life. I want you to think about the things that keep you from living this life of freedom that God has created you to live, that he has provided for you to live, and yet something is holding you back. Something is keeping you from fully embracing that freedom. What is it? What is it? Is it a certain struggle, a certain sin? Is it, is it an addiction? Is it, a, is it a relationship that is unhealthy, but you just can't let go of it, but you know that relationship is dragging you away from God, it is holding you back? Is it past mistakes that you've made? Is it the, the guilt and the shame of those mistakes or current mistakes? What is it? Is it a crippling anxiety that just will not let go of you? Is it doubts? Is it fears about what has happened or worries about what will happen or concerns about what is happening? What is it? My guess is there is something on some level that is keeping you from living the life God has created you to live. There is something keeping you from experiencing true freedom. The freedom that he provides. You see, God wants to bring you out of captivity and take you into a new home, a new life. He wants to give you freedom. He wants you to be unencumbered by anything that would hold you back. That's why the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 1 says this, throw off everything that hinders you and the sin that so easily entangles you and run with perseverance the race marked out for you. You see, we are moving somewhere. We are on a journey. And hopefully, prayerfully, that journey is not just to heaven. I think that's sort of what we normally think about. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. Yes, hopefully that is, that is the case. But it's deeper than that. It's, it's, it's bigger than that. We are moving toward Christ-likeness. We are moving toward the kingdom of God and being shaped in the image of his son. We are moving toward freedom. And the writer of Hebrews says, you throw off 
anything and everything that keeps you from moving in that direction, from running toward Christ and Christ's likeness. If it's holding you back, you need to be set free from it. So where does this race begin? Where does this journey to freedom start? Well, for Moses and the Israelites, it started with a calling, a commissioning. It started with a very personal and powerful encounter with God. If you've been around the Bible much at all, you've heard the story, Moses and the burning bush. I think our kids right now in Bible hour are talking about that. Our children get that lesson a lot, don't they? The burning bush. It's such an impactful story, and it relates to us. So if you have a Bible, let's look at Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is going to be an important place in Moses' life. Mount Horeb, also thought to be Mount Sinai. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, huh, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Now you need to know at this point, Moses is living a nondescript life. He is off the grid. He is just doing his thing, and his thing right now is watching his father-in-law's sheep. He is a shepherd. But God shows up, and he has an important job for Moses. Moses, I need you to lead my people out of Egyptian captivity into freedom. Put them on the course for the promised land, the destiny that I have for them. Now, Moses had sort of tried to do this 40 years earlier. He saw injustice against his fellow Israelites, and he stepped in, but that did not go so well. It's a good reminder that God's timing isn't always our timing, and certainly his ways, his plans, his process are not always the same as ours. So God gets Moses' attention with this strange sight, a bush that is burning but not burning up. Moses walks up to see it. Pick back up our story in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Did you notice that God calls Moses by name? This isn't a generic calling. Moses isn't just the next man up. This is God focusing in on the one that he has planned to lead his people. And it's not because Moses is so qualified. It's not because God was scrolling through LinkedIn. He came across Moses' profile and he said, that's my guy. In fact, it was quite the opposite, as we will see. Moses isn't qualified, and yet God has called him because that's what God does. His calling is more about him, God, than it is about Moses. So God tells Moses that he is standing on holy ground. Personal encounters with the divine remind us that some spaces are sacred, aren't they? 
And these spaces aren't necessarily sacred because they are inherently holy. It is because the God who occupies them and who chooses to be profoundly present in those moments, in those spaces, is without a doubt holy. This is one of those spaces. This is one of those moments. So think about what Moses is going through. I mean, he has gone from this obscure shepherd, basically out in the wilderness, to this curious onlooker, hmm, this is interesting, to now standing in front of a burning bush that is speaking, in essence, barefoot, covering his face because he's afraid as he acknowledges he is in the presence of God Almighty. That's quite a journey already. That's just in one day. So God commissions Moses. Pick up our story in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. God says, Moses, I have a job for you. It's an important job. I want you to lead my people out of captivity and let them embrace freedom. Throughout Scripture, there is a genre or a formula for call narratives. And it's pretty typical with many of the call narratives throughout Scripture. And one of the elements of that formula, before someone is summons and commissioned, there is usually a crisis. There is a reason that you have to pick up the phone. There is a reason that God comes knocking on your door. And in this case, certainly, there is a major crisis. God sees his people, the Israelites, are being oppressed. They're being mistreated in Egyptian captivity. The new Pharaoh is not a fan of the growing population of Israelite refugees in his homeland, and he feels threatened by them. That's often the response of people in power with privilege, that those coming in will take that power and that privilege, and so they must stop the threat. And so what does Pharaoh do? He tries a two-prong approach. One, I will demoralize them by increasing their workload as slaves to an unreasonable level. And number two, I will begin to limit the population of Israelites by killing male babies. Pharaoh was not a good guy. And the text says that God sees his people's misery. He hears their cries for help, and he's concerned about their suffering. And so verse 8, what does he do? God says, I came down to rescue them. It's time for God to act, and that's what he does. He came down to rescue them. That's what God did then, and that's what he does now. So as you consider your journey to freedom, Specifically, as you consider what it is that is holding you back, that is keeping you captive, hindering you, a sin, a struggle, a past, whatever it is, as you consider that, I want you to know that God is for you. That's what we just saw. God is for you. 
Now his process, his plan, his timing may be different than yours, but God is for you. He sees your suffering. He hears your cries. He cares about what's happening. So he comes down to rescue you. Isn't that what God does? I love that imagery of God coming down here. Now, we know that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent, but in our minds and with our language, we need words and we're limited, and so we often see God in heaven is up there, don't we? Somewhere up there in the sky. And God knows that. And so he not only speaks our language, but in accommodating us through our language, he also shows how he accommodates us to rescue us. I came down to rescue you. I joined you. I met you where you are, in your pain, in your suffering. I'm with you. Isn't that what Jesus is all about? The incarnation, the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us. He saw our pain. He saw our need. And he didn't just stand on the sidelines and say, we'll see what we can do about that. He said, I came down to rescue you you God is for you that's who God is that's what God does he meets us in our suffering he joins us in our pain and he does something about it one of the things that you will also see in the call narratives in scripture quite often are object, uh, objections or excuses or resistance that people give God will call someone and they'll say, eh, God, I'm not too sure about that. Jonah, I need you to go preach to Nineveh. <laughs> I don't think so. I think I'll go the opposite direction. So you often see objections, and this is certainly the case with Moses. If you know Moses' story, you know there are not just one or two objections. There are many. Just look at some of these objections in chapter 3, verse 11. Who am I, God, to lead these people? In other words, I'm a nobody. What influence do I have? What can I do? Have you ever felt that way? What can I do about injustice in our world? What can I do about this or that issue? I'm just one small person. Verse 13, what is his name? He's asking, who is behind me? Under whose authority am I going to act? Who has my back? Chapter 4, verse 1, what if the people don't believe me? What if I come waltzing in and I say, hey, God has chosen me to lead us all up out of Egypt and go to the promised land, so pack your bags. And they look at me like, who are you? We don't believe you. Verse 10, he says, God, you need to know that I'm not a good public speaker. When I get up in front of people, man, I start sweating and I get lightheaded and I forget what I was going to say. I can't inspire people. I can't inform people. I've never even taken Toastmasters, God. I, I don't think I can do this. And then finally, what does Moses say? He just finally says, God, please, just pick someone else. <laughs> just go tap someone else on the shoulder. Leave me alone. God, I don't want to do this. I can't do this. I don't want to. Please choose someone else. Excuse after excuse, reason after reason, objection after objection. Why? Because leaving our comfort zones, leaving what we know, even if it's captivity, even if it's not good, is difficult. Those things that hold us captive, they aren't just things that we deal with. So often, they become part of us. And we, we make our identity based on those things. 
leaving our comfort zone can be tough. As we will see throughout Israel's journey to freedom, objections didn't stop with Moses at the burning bush. And they often don't stop with our commissioning, our calling. So often God takes us kicking and screaming into freedom, into our destiny. So often we put up resistance. But what does God do with Moses' objections? To me, that's one of the remarkable parts of this story. Because if that had been me, I think I'd have said, Moses, come on, man, pull yourself together. Let's do this. You know, I'd have given him the coach speak. Let's go, man. Suck it up. Stop being a, a baby. Let's go. But God doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't reprimand him. In fact, he shows great patience and he addresses each objection. So when Moses says, well, who am I to do this? God says, I'm with you. This is on me. I got your back. When Moses says, well, who are you? God says, I am who I am. In other words, I am bigger and broader than your mind can even fathom. I am eternal and everlasting. Don't worry about who I am. I can handle this. When Moses says, well, what if they don't believe me? What does God do? He gives him three tangible, visible signs. He says, Moses, throw your staff down. He throws it down, it turns into a snake. He says, well, pick it up. And by the way, that's when I would have been out. I just would have walked away. He picks it up and it turns back into a staff. He says, look at your hand, put it in your cloak, pull it out. It has sores and leprosy, put it back in, take it out, it's all clean. He says, or he turns water into blood. He gives him three visible, tangible signs, all of those to say, listen, they will believe you because I'm behind you. And here is proof, here is evidence, here are these signs. When Moses says, I'm not a good public speaker, what does God say? Moses, let me remind you who gave you your ability to speak. I gave you your mouth. I will speak for you. Don't worry about it. And when Moses says, I just don't want to do this, pick someone else. Again, now at this point, I think God has kind of had enough. But even then, he provides a, a provision for Moses. He says, I'll send Aaron, your brother, to go along with you. You won't have to do this alone. He can help out. I want you to look at Moses' objections. Every single one of them is focused on whom? Moses, right? Who am I? What will I say? What if they don't believe me? I can't speak. I don't want to go. Time and time again, Moses gives resistance and pushback based on what he wants, what he thinks on his desires. So much of our resistance to what God is trying to do in our lives circles back to self. Again, so many things that hold us captive really are about us and what we truly want if truth be told. It is said that to trap a monkey, which I'm not sure why you would ever want to do that, but if you ever wanted to trap a monkey, that certain tribes back in the day would take a coconut, hollow out the coconut, maybe you've heard this before, put some kind of fruit in the coconut as bait, and the hole for the coconut was just large enough for the monkey to get his hand through, and so they would put the coconut up in a tree or somewhere where the monkeys came along, monkey would see it, probably smell the fruit, reach in there to get it, grab the fruit, but then they could not pull their fist out of the hole, out of the coconut, because the hole was just 
big enough to get through it, but then once they made a fist, they couldn't back out of it. And so clearly, all the monkey has to do to be free is what? Just let go. Just let go of it, and you'll be free. But so often, they will not let go. I think so often we are the same way. If we just let go, we will find freedom. Moses couldn't let go of self. Of course Moses wasn't qualified. That was his whole case to God. (laughs) Of course he wasn't qualified. God specializes in using people who are flawed to accomplish his perfect will. That's what God does because it is not based on us. It is based on God. That's the whole point. Every time Moses says, me or I, me or I, God tries to get him to see beyond himself, and he says, I will be with you. I will speak for you. I will help you. I will provide for you. You see, here's the truth. God's calling on your life is so much more about God than it is about you. God's deliverance from your captivity into freedom is not so much about you and your abilities and your thoughts and your wisdom as it is about God and his power. So that means that his purpose is greater than our preferences. It means that his power exceeds our abilities. Moses' calling wasn't about what he could do or couldn't do or wanted to do or didn't want to do. It was about who God is and what he wanted. Now, does God gift us in certain areas and call us according to our giftedness? Yes, I I think that happens probably quite often. But there are also times when I think God puts people in the most unlikely places and provides for them the most unexpected opportunities. And then he equips them and he gives them what they need to do what he has called them to do. Haven't you found that to be true in your life? As you sort of look back over your life, don't you see the fingerprints of God and you think, boy, that, I, I can't explain that by my own abilities or knowledge or my own resources. That God is acting there. I mean, I think about my own life. I never desired to be a minister, to be a preacher. When I went to college, I didn't go to college to be trained to preach. Some of you are saying, yeah, that's pretty obvious. (laughs) Now, I went back to school and got training in ministry, but that's not why I originally went to school. I wanted to do something completely different. And yet God had a different plan, at least for this season of my life. What about you? And I'm not just talking about your job or your career. I'm talking about your calling. And those two aren't necessarily always the same. Now, they always feed into each other but they aren't necessarily the same maybe you don't even have a job or maybe you're retired or maybe your job is is at home or or your calling is much deeper than than a job where does God want you where does he want to lead you what is he calling or what is his calling on your life right now Now, specifically, as you think about that question, I want you to think about it in the context of what we've been talking about. What is holding you captive? What is it? 
Is it fears about our world? Is it fears about the future? Is it a, a certain temptation, a certain sin, a certain struggle? Is it, is it a past that you just cannot overcome? Is it an unhealthy relationship? Is it, is it grief that just seems to suffocate you? Is it anxiety that seems to, to cripple you? What is it? And as you think about what it might be, let me ask you, where does God want you to be? Does he want you to be held back by that? Does he want you to daily wrestle with that? Especially if it keeps you from living the life he's called you to live, a life of freedom and joy and peace and purpose. And I know it's not easy to let go of some of those things. Although we value freedom higher than many other things, we still sometimes struggle to embrace freedom. Because these things, whatever they are, they become a part of us. And it's not just like taking off a pair of socks and, you know, putting them in the hamper. Okay, they're no longer a part of me. It's not that easy. If we're honest, so often we know that God is calling us to leave a life of captivity, but we're afraid. We make excuses. We come up with objections. I can't leave this behind. I don't, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know how to move forward. I it's a part of me. What will I have if I give this up? I'm not strong enough. It's not my fault. I enjoy it. I, I, me, me. So often our resistance is rooted in self, just like it was for Moses. And God comes along and he says to us with great patience, this isn't about you. Of course you can't do this on your own. You can't overcome this sin. You can't get over this past. You can't move beyond this relationship. You can't overcome the grief that you're dealing with on your own. Of course not. But I can. Do you remember what he said? I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard their cries for help. I care about their suffering. And I am coming down. I am meeting you in your pain. I am meeting you where you are to what? Rescue you. To bring you out of captivity into freedom. I think that journey begins, your journey begins, with a personal and powerful encounter with God. Just like it did for Moses. God has to become real to you. You can't live with someone else's faith and have God real because as soon as something happens, you will abandon God. You will abandon your faith because it's not your faith anyway. It's your parents, it's your youth ministers, it's your friends, it's your spouses, it's someone else's. You need to have a personal and powerful encounter with God. The voice of God needs to come off the pages of your Bible. And you need to witness the power of God firsthand in your life. And when, when the grace of God and the mercy of God and the love of God becomes the very air you need to breathe to survive, then God is starting to become real to you. When we humbly stand on holy ground and we rip off our sandals, we cover our face, and we realize that we are in the presence of the great I am, God becomes real. And we begin our journey 
But until then, God remains abstract. Some character floating in the clouds, far removed from my daily struggles and my, my daily victories. Faith is just this nebulous concept. Discipleship is just something we talk about but never really submit to. Christianity becomes something for someone else, not me, until God becomes real. Think about Saul, who became Paul in Acts. What did it take for him to leave behind this life of legalism and of hostility towards Christ and Christ's followers? What did it take? It took a personal and powerful encounter with God. Remember the road to Damascus? Bright light, voice from heaven. Why are you persecuting me? You see, Saul had to be blinded so that he could ultimately see. It's time for you to stand on holy ground. It's past time for some of us. We've just been going through the motions, talking the talk, but we've never really had that encounter with God that shapes our life, that puts us on a trajectory toward freedom, our destiny. It's time for you to stand on holy ground. And maybe it's right here, right now, in this place. Or maybe it's at home in your closet. Push some of that clutter aside and get on your knees, and that's your holy ground. Or maybe it's a group of men or a group of women or a group of couples who, who are getting serious about discipleship. And you can't wait to meet with them every week. Or maybe it's just in your vehicle, driving down the road, you and God. Or maybe it's sitting next to a hospital bed or standing next to a casket. I don't know. Maybe it's up on a mountain. Maybe it's at a retreat. Where's your holy ground? Where can you encounter God in a powerful way? And when you encounter him, and he calls you to do something. Maybe to do something that you think extends beyond your abilities. To do something that's going to take a great leap of faith. To leave your comfort zone. To leave behind the things that have not only been a burden to you, but have defined you. Things that you have allowed to define you. When he asks you to leave those behind. To journey to freedom. Don't default to those objections that are based on self i can't i won't i don't know how i just take off your sandals cover your face and recognize that you are in the presence of the great i am and his calling on your life is not about you it's about him and what he can do in you and through you and just take that next step of faith that next step of faith Where's your holy ground? Where will you experience and encounter God? If it's right here, right now, we want to be a part of that if we can. If you're ready to give your life to Christ, to confess your faith that Jesus is Lord, to be baptized into Christ, do that today. We'd love to celebrate that with you. If we can encourage you in some way, let us do that. If we can pray for you, if you need to confess sin, please do that. A couple of our shepherds will be in the parlor with their wives. It's a room right behind me. Just a minute, you can get up and go there. They'd be happy to encourage you and talk to you and pray for you. Let them, let them do that. Uh, or maybe you want to come down here and let us as a church family 
embrace you and pray for you. If there's something we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. Be with me, Lord, I cannot live without Thee. 